Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Before I start, though, I would like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wondery people of the Kulin Nation here, where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders past and present and those of all other First Nations people who may be listening today. After a night of wine and pasta and planning for their future, Natasha Scholl and her partner Rob go to bed. A few hours later, at the age of 27, Rob's heart stops. Natasha is just 22 when her partner Rob dies and the grief and trauma of this event will shape her life and conception of love as she struggles through her own and society's expectation of what grief and loss should look like. Found wanting is Natasha Scholl's clear-eyed elegy to those she's lost and an exploration of how life can go on somehow alongside those unfillable holes. Natasha Scholl will join me soon to talk about her book and the craft behind it. And as we do on so many shows, uh, I'll be talking to her over the course of this hour. So do stay with us for that time if you enjoy a nice long form interview. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to Triple R, the show is backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I didn't want to look up. I didn't want to run 42.2 kilometres and beat my PB. People died and I just wanted to be sad about it. Sometimes, often. I was too tired, too beaten, too weary to be a better person. I didn't want to break records or start movements or inspire. If I could be a better version of myself, I'd want to be the kind of person who didn't bite my nails, the kind of person who didn't pick up my cuticles until they bled, who could just leave well enough alone, who could go to a party or watch TV or be stuck in traffic without constantly pick, pick, picking at rough edges and hangnails. That was the sum of my big life goals and even that was not something I actively strove to achieve. That's an excerpt from Natasha Scholl's memoir, Found Wanting. After a night of wine and pasta and planning for their future, Natasha and her partner Rob go to bed. A few hours later, at just the age of 27, Rob's heart stops. Natasha is just 22 when Rob dies and the grief and trauma of this event will shape her life and conception of love as she struggles through her own and society's expectations of grief and loss. Found wanting is Natasha Shaw's clear-eyed elegy to those she's lost and an exploration of how life can go on somehow alongside those unfillable holes. Natasha joins me now, though, to talk about her book, and the craft behind it. Natasha, welcome to Backstory. Bring me. 
Now, this book is obviously an acutely personal book. I, I was very moved reading it. I'm sure uh, many other readers will or have already felt the same way. But I would like to ask a question. How did you come to write this book? Because writing about one's profound grief is not necessarily something you want to share with the world. Yeah, I think that for a long time I tried not to write this book. I actively tried not to. And everything else that I was writing just felt a bit dishonest, like I had this story that was sitting under the surface sort of waiting to bubble up and it was sort of infecting everything else, I guess, would be one way to look at it. And at one point, I guess, the fear of um, writing it the fear of not writing it was greater than the fear of writing it and I just went for it. It just felt like the time was right and I can't explain why. It just felt urgent all of a sudden. Yeah, now I've, I've sort of summarised what the book was about. It's an, obviously an extraordinary uh, and devastating experience that you describe going through but many other things happen because this is not just the instant of grief that you're writing about but... Uh, the aftermath. I think you in the book mm-hmm. reference um, my year of magical thinking, uh, which mm-hmm. the Joan Didion novel as well, which obviously has had a profound effect on you too. Um, again, this idea of how one deals with with great loss is really covered in it. Can you maybe talk a bit about um, your conception of the book so people can get a sense of what it is? Yeah, I guess when I started writing, I thought I was writing a book about grief and all the things that nobody really talks about because when it happened to me, it wasn't just the shock of losing someone, it was the shock of everything that happened to you and to the world around you and to your outlook and to your body, to everything. And I was so shocked by that. And so that's what I set out to do. But I think what ended up happening was that I wasn't writing so much a book about grief but a book about love because... After grief, there's still a lot of life to be living and it was more about how to reintegrate into society, I guess, and how that changed perception. There's a ripple-on effect for everything, really. So I guess it's not just a book about grief. It's not just a sad book, but it's also a book about hope and love and the absurdity of life, I guess. Yeah, I'd say that's an excellent characterisation of it, as, <laughs> as it would be. Uh, so, look, I, I want to talk about some of the elements of writing this book, and I do want to delve into the themes that you cover, uh, because obviously it is there is at its central core, as well as all those other things, this this real conception of what the right way to grieve is, and there's a lot of thinking around that, which I want to delve into a little bit more. But let's talk about the craft, because, of course, this is a show about craft. Um, you actually really own a lot of your self as a writer in this in this book. Um, you give us a, an idea of, of what it is to try to approach this great loss at a very young age as someone who already sort of starts to see themselves as a writer. Uh, you talk, uh, in fact, you give us an excerpt from a creative writing ex- exercise <laughs> that you do at university. And I have to say, I, I did smile a little bit at some of these elements, not necessarily the material, which I actually thought was very strong, I have to say. Um, but the comment that uh, that you, you got from, I think, one of your tutors at uni who said, first years always write about the worst thing they can think about. And I just wanted to talk a bit about this section Yeah, so that section was um, taken from an assignment which I did 
early on in my creative writing was was part of my arts degree. And I sort of had imagined, I put myself in the position of someone who had lost a partner. And at that stage, I was deep in the throes of love. And so I imagined what was the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I only put myself in that position and I attempted (laughs) um, to write about it. And it was sort of only after Rob had died that I sort of it came back to me in this cold flash and my first thought was, what have I done? Like, I put it into words and now it's happened and I've somehow caused it to happen. And looking back, I've still got it. I've still got the assignment with all the tutor's notes on it. But looking back on it, some of it was so spot on, like the, the feelings of hysteria and mania and the irrationality of grief and the way it just, messes with your mind so part of that was just completely spot on and looking back at it now I was a bit shocked how I managed to capture that having literally no experience of growth whatsoever but also that element of I felt like there was that guilt or shame that somehow I'd maybe caused this to happen just by thinking of it and I think it's quite common like as children we imagine awful things happening to our parents or car crashes or people that we love and so I feel like yes this was something that happened to me in my experience of it but there was also that universal um, experience as well that I was trying to tap into. So there's that awful portentousness of the writer isn't there and I, I think even later in the book there's another element that you sort of you uh, you know in a writerly way pause on to presage yet another great loss that you experience and there you know I guess that's the magical thinking component that does sort of stay with you both as a writer and as a person throughout the uh, the experiences that you detail later on that you feel you're somehow cursed or you've somehow had the power to conjure this not just the power of a creative writer but the actual power of someone who can create in life Um, I think that's covered really quite beautifully how did you because these are again and obviously I have spoken with many people on this show who are dealing with quite sensitive personal material whether it's fictionalized or it is in memoir form as yours is Um, but it's it's something that obviously you have to take out of yourself how do you take a step back from this material is it time is it you know, kind of experience or writing it out in many different ways to get to that objectivity that you need as a writer? I did try at first to write it as fiction um, and failed. I felt like there was just too much separation between what I was trying to capture when I was fictionalising it and the truth was it wasn't fiction, it it happened. So I felt that um, I just had to just go for it and immerse myself in it completely and I wrote it assuming that um that it wouldn't be read so I if I if I thought that one day I'd be speaking to you on the radio about it I don't think I'd actually be able to write it half the things that are in there um but I'm glad I did now so I just had to write it with blinkers on and just write it for the sake of writing it without knowing what the end result would be and I think Part of that was just to know that maybe someone else would read it who had been in a similar situation or write it to write it for the past version of myself rather than as a general public, I guess, um, and just hope that it would be received in the right kind of way. 
Yeah. Do you think there is such a thing as writing these kinds of things too soon? Because that's certainly the common wisdom, isn't it? That you're, if it's too fresh or too raw, you're not going to do your best writing about it in that way. Do you think there's truth in that? Yeah, I think it's different for each person. I couldn't have personally written it so close to the time. Um, and a few people asked me had I written diaries or notes at that time because, you know, people bought me notebooks and stuff to try and help me sort of deal with the grief and try as a form of healing, I guess. And I, I, I said I didn't write because I can't remember writing anything. I have no memory of being able to put pen to paper or do anything like that. That just wasn't where I found comfort at that time. It was all just too raw. Um, but it was actually after the book um, had been picked up and it was sort of, you know, in final edit stages, I was going through an old drawer and actually found a notebook from the time and I had actually scribbled. I just had no memory of it. And a lot of the notes I had written were the exact things that were in the book. So obviously some part of my subconscious knew that I needed to capture them some way and had put put it down somewhere in a loft box that went from house to house as we moved. And it was only after I'd finished the book that I could go back and find it in my own handwriting, sort of these notes from the time, which was a bit of an eerie experience, actually. You do kind of, you know, give some room for uh, memories being potentially not exact for example describing an aunt turning up uh, at your doorstep with your cousin dressed as a clown which you cannot for the life of you remember whether or not it actually happened or it was a conflated memory and then you're reluctant to actually check I, I sort of love these inclusions because it does really accurately represent I guess how we remember things or misremember sometimes but also that confused period of acutely remembering stuff during a period of crisis but also trauma having a strange inability to retain memory which you also touch on can you talk about how you've kind of employed that in in the writing because it very much has been wound in both literally and also you know to give a sense that you know this is your account it may not be the only account of events yeah I think I was very conscious that I didn't want to speak for other people because it was my perception of what happened. I didn't want to tell anyone else's story um, and their story even being there, the exact same events, it's different from their perception. So I was very conscious of that from the very beginning. Um, and I also think that <laughs> grief is such an absurd, bizarre experience that how we think it might, um, what we think might happen is actually just so totally different. Like you think you'd go through this traumatic life event and you'd remember every single second and the, the time of day that someone you love died, like obviously you remember that and the thing that they died from, of course you remember that and, the, you know, the clothes they were wearing, like all these things that you think would stick with you and haunt you, they, they sort of, they're the, they're the things that I couldn't even grasp onto and it was such a bizarre experience revisiting that and that the reality of what happened to our minds and our bodies is just so different to our to how we think it would occur. So I think I was very conscious of wanting to explore that because when it was happening to me at the time, I thought there must be something wrong with me. I must be doing grief wrong. Like what kind of partner would forget all these really important details? So I think it was important to me to include that to show this is what happens and it's strange and bizarre and absurd and I wanted to sort of lean into that and explore that a little bit. Now, Natasha, I, I want to pick up on, on talking about this idea of writing 
from life because obviously that is what a memoir is and what it is you know again it's something I have discussed on this show before but I am interested in everyone's sort of different view on how they approach things you've said you don't want to tell anyone else's story but it's inevitable that stories their stories will intersect with yours at least your conception of those stories how do you approach this? Because it is one of those ethical conundrums. It's often, and I have to say from personal experience, you know, maybe being a bit reluctant to even uh, write because you don't want to necessarily expose other people. How have you covered these things, especially because you are talking about quite sensitive areas of life and things that people may take umbrage about or, you know, have a different view? How, you know, I, I know that you initially wrote it, as though you weren't publishing it, but what when you knew you were publishing it, how did you approach things? Yeah, it's so complicated, isn't it? I think um, first and foremost, I had to make sure that every, apart from me, because obviously, you know, I'm the one writing it. I know it's in there, but everyone else in there had to be treated with respect and dignity and compassion at every stage. So anything in there. Um, that that was sort of the light that had to be shone on them. So it was just ensuring that everyone came through, um, yeah, with that sort of dignity and respect and without speaking for them and their losses or their experience of grief. Um, I think first and foremost it was my my husband, Dean, who who had to be okay with everything in there. So like it's, it's our relationship that's in there now and he had to be comfortable with everything so he was the first person that read a full draft and but he hadn't read anything until the whole book was finished so he read the first draft and the first thing he just said was it's it's beautiful and and you've nailed that you've done it and so after that it was that element of relief um and in fact the only the only the first thing he said apart from saying that it was beautiful was you just need to capture Rob Moore you just need to make sure because, you know, he was so charismatic, he'd walk into a room and everyone would turn around. So I think that gives some idea of the sort of respect that we wanted to ensure everyone was treated with. Like, his first concern wasn't himself. It was that Rob's memory was, you know, preserved and and I really captured who he was as a human being. So, yeah, it was complicated, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, if it may not be the story that someone else would have written, but it was true to me at every at every moment. And I think it's fair to say that the person that or the character in this story that that obviously gets the most well, not obviously that gets the most kind of you know hard hitting sort of exposure is actually you. You've been unflinching in yeah. offering up uh, a characterization of yourself that at times uh, isn't necessarily flattering, but is, it feels utterly honest and real. You know, particularly things like your new relationship you find yourself in with Dean your feelings about that and how you characterise it, it all felt very honest. How do you dig into that when you start out to write something like this? Um, yeah, I think a few people have said to me now that it was very brave, the things that I've written, <laughs> and which is sort of one of those, you know, I know what they're saying. Um, but also I think the element that people are maybe forgetting is, I don't know, I guess it's... The bravery for me was experiencing all of that but having no outlet for it and just going about everyday life as if nothing had happened. Like that that was a thing that was sort of hard to carry and that was so difficult. And, you know, it's something that's with me every day 
but maybe walking down the street, you don't realise that all these people have all these internal lives and these stories and these experiences. So I guess that being unflinching and, and writing some of the things that are in there. I mean, I did have a panic in the week before it was being published. I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? But apart from that, I don't know, I just think that's not the bit that's brave. The brave bit is, you know, the last decade or more of carrying this and sort of feeling like um, like I didn't even know what to do with the information. I, I didn't even know how to feel about it. So having it all out there and almost validated, like, you know, that that's the good bit really. What has the response been, do you mind, if I ask? Yeah, no, the, the response has been just beautiful and overwhelming and, you know, better than I could have imagined and people sharing their own stories. And that, that's the thing, like every, every single person I've spoken to has spoken about their own grief and it may not be exactly the same, but there's different versions, even if it's not someone who's died, like there's different versions of grief and our lives, you know, no one's life is smooth sailing. Things happen that shock us or that it seem outside of our control and you know things don't happen as we expect so just knowing it's resonated on that level has been completely overwhelming and you know I'm receiving messages from people who are sort of literally in that the early stage of grief where I was literally in chapter one and saying thank you for writing it it was given to me as, as a present by someone and now I understand myself better so to have that, I mean, that's really all that, that matters. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and today I'm speaking with Natasha Scholler about her memoir, Found Wanting. Natasha, I'm going to take a quick break, but I'd really like to talk more about your book and particularly some of the, the themes it covers around bereavement and the expectation of grief, as you've just touched on as well, um, if you're happy to, to join me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and today I'm speaking with author Natasha Scholl about her memoir, Found Wanting, a clear-eyed elegy to those she's lost in an exploration of how life can go on somehow alongside those unfillable holes. Natasha, I just want to read an excerpt uh, from your book. It's towards the end and it's, uh, you know, kind of, I hope to set up uh, a little conversation I want to have about the rituals of death and the expectations that we have of what grieving will be like. We go through the motions after the thump, thump, thump of dirt fills up the open grave. We kiss gently on cheeks, even those with deep resentments, with familial disagreements, going back days or weeks or years. Death, the great leveller. We walk around, say our goodbyes and wish each other long life as if by reflex. The original Hebrew of this saying is Kaim Arakim or Rikat Yamim, length of days. The Jewish religion places such a high premium on every moment at all times, but especially in the face of a recent bereavement, that we are to wish each other these words to young and old to carry out their purpose in this world 
Long life, we say, as we disperse, leaving the dead behind. The contrast of its greats through the words leave my lips as if by reflex. The way we wish someone more time without the person they have lost. Natasha, this is just such a um, a beautiful um, a beautiful kind of excerpt. I was very moved by it, and I think you've kind of captured. Um, an experience that I, I felt myself where, you know, particularly in this uh, tradition where one says, wish you long life, a focus on life rather than death, but the way that that kind of leaves you a little destabilised. Can you talk a bit about this experience? Yeah, I think so much. I mean, I, when I was writing this book, I didn't expect so much of sort of religion or ritual to be a part of it, and yet it seemed to sort of pop up whatever I was writing, it sort of threaded itself through, which was interesting as if I had no control over that. It just sort of came through on its own because I think these these rituals are so much a part of our grieving and mourning process, whatever whatever background you're from. There's sort of something in there that, that teaches you what happens next and how you're to behave and something to say. And I think in certain ways the Jewish religion is very intuitive when it comes to mourning. It tell, you know, you don't even have to think about it. The second you're at a cemetery, you know what to say. You, you wish someone long life. You don't, there's not that awkward moment of what do I say, what do I do, do I have to think of something, it's just long life. And, you know, there's just two words, but there's all this other meaning behind it. it it's meant to be a comfort, but at the same time... It's almost, I don't know, it's like this echo of now that your person is gone, you have this long life before you. So it's sort of this double-sided thing that I hadn't really thought about before. And I feel like anyone who's been to a Jewish funeral, that that first thumping of that dirt on a grave, I mean, it just, it echoes. I can feel it in my chest even just thinking about it now. It's so familiar to so many people and... Yeah, so there are all these rituals, whether they're religious or just, you know, things that we're taught to do from a young age, I guess. In this in this moment, you know, as you say, the contrast of it grates, though the words leave my lips as if by reflex, you know, there's both, as you say, that uncomfortable comfort. You know what to do and say. You know your place in this particular grief, even though it does feel like it's not enough or it doesn't express what you need to express you know, it's still a certain comfort in that you have a place to hide, I guess. You have have a, a way to, to be. Earlier in the book, you don't have those the comfort of those rituals. Uh, they're, you know, following by strict Judaic law. You couldn't grieve your partner in the way uh, the traditions dictate because he didn't belong to the seven classes of close familial relations. You weren't married. He was your partner, um, you know, you lived with and in all other ways you were connected to in that way, but because of the nature of how that works, you weren't afforded the comfort of a traditional religion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it is the contrast between the different griefs and there are a number, without going into them too deeply, because I do feel like it's one part of the richness of reading this to kind of discover what you go through in your life. Um, But I think, you know, that it is sort of really a contrast in later griefs that you do have at least the ritualistic comforts that you don't have early on. Can you talk about that dissonance? Yeah, so in the Jewish religion, if you aren't married, then technically you aren't part of that 
in a circle of um, mourners and there are all these different rituals. Um, there's a, a shiva, which is the seven days where people go to the mourner's house and you, you talk about the person who has died and there are all these beautiful rituals set up. But I was sort of a bit separate from that because even though we lived together and we planned a future together, by strict law, we weren't married and therefore I was excluded. And I think that so much of grief already feels a bit exclusionary, like you feel like you've been taken out of this world that everyone else is living in already and you feel a bit lost. So I think that just emphasised that even more and it was like this this double loss almost because I'd lost the person I'd planned to spend the rest of my life with but I'd also lost my place at that present time as well. So I felt a bit like I was floating in this sort of limbo of not knowing where I fit. This becomes quite a theme as well because you feel somewhat abandoned by everyone around you. Uh, that, you know, obviously there are your core support groups that seem to stand by you, but friends grow distant because they don't know what to say or they, you know, your, your feeling is that they're worried that they will be infected by your grief in some way. You know, you you talk about some of these elements in an article uh, you wrote for The Guardian about what not to say to someone who's grieving. Can you discuss that a little? Yeah, I think um, as a culture we're just so terrified of grief. And I get it. Like I've said, you know, some ridiculous things to people even now because it's just, you know, it comes out, we can't help it. But, yeah, I think we're just so afraid of what, you know, death means when something happens, especially sort of an out-of-order out of death when it's a child or someone young, we separate ourselves from it a little bit because we don't want to admit that that's something that could happen, even though it's literally something that just did happen. And I feel like so many people who have experienced a sort of a, a death in their um they, they have that same experience of people literally crossing the road to get away from them because they don't know what to say and it's that terror of just needing to get away from the situation and it doesn't come from a bad place. I think people just are so uncomfortable and so I think that's what I was trying to get across in the article. It's not, it, it's not to do with intent. Like people are so supportive and so loving um, but, but we just don't even know how to behave and even the person who's grieving, like I felt at that time, I felt like I was meant to direct people like, people would say oh just let me know if you need anything and I was like I don't know what I need I need my person back like can you do that that's all I need right now mm. so you know we just we just don't know what to do and we look to each other for the, that kind of support or direction but we're all just winging it really here's another excerpt from your book the world wants to see post-traumatic growth it wants to see happy endings a crescendo of grief and loss and pain and joy that leads to something, somewhere. But what if it doesn't? What if awful things just happen because awful things just happen and we bear them, we endure? Can you speak to this? Because this is very much a theme throughout the book. Um, you know, the, the traditional sort of approaches to grief are, are somewhat belied. I have to say, Dean comes off really well in this book in terms of allowing you that, um, you know, as a character that you've you've conceived here and I'm sure in life too um, but it it is one of those things this idea of the kind of redemption arc or you know grief as a, a process of learning you know all of these kinds of things that are now being interrogated in in ways that you have done and others have now about what actually happens when you lose someone particularly in a, a traumatic way 
Yeah, I think that, you know, when something awful happens, there has to be, you know, a story that society can tell, like, this awful thing happened, but now there's this redemptive arc and they started a charity and now they've saved all these other people and something wonderful happened. And see, there's a meaning behind it. There's a reason why it happened. But where does that leave the person who has died, really, um, who is at the centre of that? And I guess that's what I was really trying to explore. And I think that when something awful happens, I mean, there are so many beautiful things that can come out of that for sure. You know, people start charities, people run marathons, like my brother did, like these amazing, beautiful experiences. Um, and that, that's fantastic, but it doesn't change the outcome of what happened, which I think is what some people try and do. They try and run into that um, that that trap of, well, if I do this thing, then maybe I can change the outcome somehow. It's like this magical thinking again. And I was... When I was hit by grief, I was just so tired all the time. I was exhausted of just trying to exist in the world and doing basic tasks. But I felt like there was this pressure on me to show people that there could be an upside or something wonderful might happen. And I don't know, it's exhausting. And I, so I think we just really need to take the pressure off people um, a little bit you also talk about this relative trauma that, you know, obviously having grandparents who are Holocaust survivors, you're, you somewhat blackly joke that it's very hard, you know, you don't have, um, you know, you're out traumaed, basically. I think you use another term um, where essentially you, you can't, you know, you, you don't win the Pity Olympics in this particular instance. And I mean, it's a horribly black way to look at it, but it is that kind of thing when you're, you know, faced with a family history that has you know, excessive trauma and loss, um, that that in some way maybe is imprinted, um, that it does add to a complexity to even how you express what you felt or the fact that you're supposed to be okay because they've been through something bigger, worse, and are somehow living with it. The joys of intergenerational trauma, yes. I suppose. Um, yeah, I think that it's sort of the, it works both ways. Like in some ways... You know, we had the my grandparents. You know, survived the concentration concentration camps, and you know, their their partners died too. Like their their wives and their husbands were killed. Their children were killed. They came here. They started a new life. And the story that we're told is, you know, they they just got on with things, and they, you know, it was almost their duty to um, continue living. And that, I mean, that's it's hard to compare anything to that when you think of of that that level of trauma so I guess that's sort of the thing that I was looking at there how can you even compare when they just got on with things and went to work but also there's that element of they didn't really deal with it at that time and that that comes up in other ways that's always there underlying under the surface. Absolutely and I think that that is the unspoken element behind a lot of you know the ways in which you're you know you're dealing with grief or others are reflecting on it and even maybe I was reflecting on a Jonathan Safran Fair short story and thinking about you know some of the ideas of silence and how that Mm. the silence of a past trauma impacts other generations and um, uh, you know there are some themes that are linked I think in these in that story and and this uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to talk about just, uh, we're almost running out of time. It's extraordinary uh, so much to, to say about this book. Uh, I want to just talk about finally this idea of writing as therapy, which we've sort of touched on. You know, how do you balance that against the sort of creative process? Because you've sort of written in a vacuum because you said you needed 
to write this book. It was the book you needed to write. Did you sort of see it more as an impediment to your writing life or that this is this story that urgently needs to be told? Is that the essence of being a creative person that in fact you need to create and perhaps you need to speak to the truth of of your creation first as opposed to this idea of writing for catharsis? Yeah, I think... I think if you're writing as therapy or writing for catharsis, I'd say, like, just go to therapy instead because it's probably more valuable. But, um, I don't know, people sort of said to me, did it feel healing? And it, it, it didn't really because I felt like I was sort of living that life already. I was sort of, it was all humming underneath anyway. I think what's been really healing is having it being read and validated and for my words to feel true um, so I think that's where the healing lies. And as a writer, I mean, I, I don't know any other way to write than truthfully. So, yeah, I think that's where the healing has been. And just to have to have that first draft read by my partner and begin to say, yes, this is true, and yes, this is our experience and your experience, um, and that it, it it can help people. That's I think where where the sort of healing has started. Just to really finish up here, I, I want to ask, you know, because you've, you've obviously um, characterised yourself as someone who studied and really loved uh, creative writing. In fact, you felt powerful and, and able in that area as opposed to that kind of at-sea feeling you felt in your law degree, which you still obviously did quite well in, extremely well in, um, and went on to work in. You, uh, Your bio now says you're a um, lapsed a lawyer or similar. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested in this in, you know, you've set out to write this much later than your original writing studies. Um, what, what advice would you give emerging writers about that kind of thing? Do you, you know, look back and wish you'd lent into it earlier? Or is there something to be said for having the life experience or other working experiences, quite apart from anything else, to be able to pay the bills, um, to go into... <laughs> you know, the craft as a more formed person? Yeah, I think you just, when the time feels right, the time feels right. I mean, I could not have written this book at the time. It just, it, the story would have been different. It wouldn't have been a book about hope. And this was the book that I needed to write and it came to me when it came to me. But at the same time, there's something to be said about leaning into that creative practice um, and and just experiencing it completely I mean I started writing this and it changed shape and it changed form so there's something to be said for just trusting the words on the page and writing from the body rather than the head I think that would be my main advice. And I do want to say this is a book about hope I think it's clear-eyed conception of grief in all its forms you know gives you a a more real and grounded sense of that so congratulations on that uh, Natasha. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you for having me. That was uh, Natasha Scholl who joined me today to talk about her memoir, Found Wanting, which is out now through Ultimo Press. It's a new uh, or relatively new Sydney uh, small press and I very much uh, recommend it. I I am actually coming up towards the end of the show Um before I go today, I do want to share some news and I I have to say I might get a little wobbly talking about it. I have felt so lucky to be able to host this show uh, on such an incredible station, really a collection of 
best friends and family is what it feels like to all of us here and I'm sure to many of you listening at home to interview amazing local authors, to talk about craft, to share my obsession with books and words with you all. But in a few weeks, it will be time to move on to give this space to another broadcaster. Perhaps one of the many talented folks who have spent time filling in on this show. I don't exactly know what the future holds, but I am certainly looking forward to finding out. Either way, I am sure I will be popping up somewhere on Triple R's airwaves uh, to say hello on other shows and time slots, or maybe even this one. Who knows? My final backstory will be uh, in three weeks' time on Wednesday the 30th of March. So I'm not leaving quite yet, and I will be savouring those last episodes, and I hope you do too. I would like to now just sort of thank all of the people, as I always do, uh, who are involved in getting this show ready. I could not uh, really do it without the support and help of the wonderful Elizabeth McCarthy, who is our talks producer and, uh, you know, does a lot of the organising of interviews or all of the organising of interviews, etc. around this show. Um, I would also like to thank uh, the new editor of the podcast, uh, Kip McLaughlin, who has recently started editing. Uh, Please check out their fine work and subscribe and review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.